China invading Taiwan would literally change everything about the existing world order that most of us have grown up with since World War II and arguably even before. Um, it, is the, it is the sort of thing that would happen where I can guarantee you if you have children of military age, they would potentially be affected by this. Like th this is something that would be so significant, not just because Taiwan is both a major U.S. trading partner and China is a major U.S. trading partner, but if you look at the whole region, South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, everything in that area, if China, uh, if China actually launched an invasion of Taiwan, again, the entire world order would change drastically, and I guarantee you it would affect all of us. But what we're going to be discussing today is could China actually pull it off? Because when most people look at the spreadsheets and the lineup between these two countries, they think that there's, there's no way China doesn't win this thing unless the United States is massively involved. And we're going to make an argument today that maybe, maybe there wouldn't need to be quite as much U.S. involvement as a lot of people anticipate. Christian and I disagree on this, and so I'm going to show him why he's completely wrong and why I'm right, as usual. All of this and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. As I asked last time, we asked for your help to help us get to 1,000 subscribers on the Making the Argument channel by May 1st. We are halfway to that goal, and if you haven't already, go to the link in the description of this episode on this live stream. Head over there, hit subscribe. That would be fantastic. Also, we're streaming on both the Nick Freitas channel and the Making the Argument channel. We're only able to look at comments on the Making the Argument channel, though, so if you're on Nick's channel, head over to the Making the Argument channel, and we'll see you there. Lastly, as I said in the last episode, our volume chat unfortunately is shutting down due to the platform ceasing to exist but we will let you know this coming tuesday where we plan to head and we look forward to seeing you there all right with you as always i am your host nick freitas member of the virginia house of delegates but other than that a good guy and for the purposes of this episode i'm going to go a little bit more into some of um, my background and experience which might be relevant to this so prior to getting in involved in politics back when i used to be a good decent human being <laughs> um, i served 11 years active duty in the military uh, as a paratrooper at the 82nd airborne division a light infantryman with the 25th infantry division over station in hawaii and then uh, finally as a member of first special forces group um, as an army green beret green berets specialize in unconventional warfare counterinsurgency counterterrorism to give you an idea of, of what that means Green Berets operate in 12-man teams where we work by, through, and with the local or indigenous population in order to achieve our military objectives. Put it a little bit more simply, we're either working with the insurgents to overthrow the government or we're working with the government to defeat the insurgents. So that gives you a little bit of some of my practical background with respect to uh, the military and the topic today. With us, as always, is also my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everyone. And then we have Christian, who's actually finishing up his dissertation right now. Christian is, we, we call him our resident historian, but if we were being a little bit more specific, it would definitely be a military historian. And he's got a depth and breadth of knowledge going all the way back from antiquity, all the way up into modern warfare. I, I, Tell us, not briefly, tell us briefly <laughs> what your dissertation is on, because there, there's actually some relevance to this topic. Yeah, my, my dissertation is actually on the, doct um, the, the evolution of the doctrine that governed the Austro-Hungarian Navy. I know it's weird because Austria does not have a navy anymore. <laughs> they don't even have a coastline anymore. But, but um, yeah, the, the, the transition from Austria having basically just a coastal defense fleet, similar to the one that China had you know, a, a generation or two ago, to them having like 
a fleet of battleships that could actually go out into the ocean and, and contest like the entire Mediterranean. So, so that, that transition is, yeah. And you're, you're going to find that offensive, on. offensive and defensive naval capability is actually going to be <laughs> a main topic on this. And then of course our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Again, I forget to unmute my <laughs> mic. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here, Nick. Thank you. Okay, so let, let's kind of let's kind of start off with lay the groundwork here. Why, why do I say that this would change everything? Um, we need to understand because I, I think Americans are so war weary, and we're so used to being at war. Like for for the last three decades, um, we, we've we've been involved in in something, whether it was you know. Smaller conflicts like Bosnia, Kosovo, and then obviously, you know, more major ones like Iraq and Afghanistan, where we're talking about a significant U.S. commitment. We're not only engaged in in winning a war, quote unquote, but also engaged in unconventional warfare, counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, nation building, nation building. Oh, my gosh. Right. And and I I think Americans are, are largely, you know, fed up with a lot of that. And that's why when you saw Russia invade Ukraine, there was a lot more hesitancy for the United States to become as involved as we typically have become in, in world events. And so you see a lot of financial, um, you know, military aid going to Ukraine, but you, you generally see a, a pretty strong commitment to not having us involvement in Ukraine, even though there's still a lot of this surrounding talk about what does this mean for NATO? What could this lead to world war three? Could it go nuclear? All of them relevant questions. But the reason why this issue it would be so much more likely to drag the world into a legitimate World War III. And by World War, I mean you would see militaries mobilizing all over the Western Hemisphere, Europe, um, Asia. I mean, it would just be – it would be drastic. Um is because of of what this conflict means. And so you you got to understand a little bit about the history. First of all, and this is going to be interesting to a lot of people – the United States does not recognize Taiwan as an independent sovereign nation. In fact, there's there's relatively few countries. I want to say there's only a handful of countries in the world that actually recognize Taiwan as being a separate entity from the People's Republic of China. So why is that? Well, before World War II, there was a huge civil war that was going on in China between Chiang Kai-shek, which was the nationalists, and Mao Zedong, which were the communists. Now, during World War II, when the Japanese invaded, there was kind of this ceasefire in fighting among themselves and fighting the Japanese for obvious reasons. However, after World War II, right, the fighting picked up again, and the communists and Mao Zedong managed to overwhelm and defeat Chiang Kai-shek, who took his forces over to the island of Formosa, we now know as Taiwan, and they set up a separate government there. But both governments to this day have claimed to represent the one China, even though Taiwan is you know, known locally as the, is the Republic of China and uh, you know, China that we all kind of generally associate with is the People's Republic of China. So a communist state versus a, a free um, democratically elected republic. Now, one of the things that's also happened in the development of these countries is that Taiwan's um, economic output um, it has been significant. If you look at it a per capita basis, um, it, it has been far wealthier than than the People's Republic of China for a long time. As the PRC started to liberalize a lot of their economic policies um, a couple of administrations ago, they obviously they rose in dominance, and, and both of them are major U.S. trading partners. Taiwan is responsible for manufacturing a, a vast some a vast quantity of the microchips that actually get used in the United States and the Western world as a whole. So you can imagine how important that is to everything from an economic, an economic standpoint and a military standpoint. China is also a major uh, trading partner with the U.S., 
And one of the things to understand here is when, when it comes to Chinese exports to the United States, um, that that is that has driven a significant portion of, of their, their economic advancement over the last couple of decades. Obviously, the United States is the largest consumer nation in the world. We have the largest economy, and it, it's really not close. Even though China's Chinese economy is as you know, just exploded over the last couple of decades, the United States is still far and away the, the world leader. Um, that leads me, so that's a little bit of the history and kind of the dynamic and why this is so important. The other thing to keep in mind here is that some of the other major economies in the world, Japan, which I believe is the fourth or fifth largest economy in the world. They're up there with, with China and Germany. China yeah. surpassed them you know, it goes a US, couple decades I think ago. it goes U.S., China, Japan, Germany. Germany. I, I think yeah. that's the, so obviously in, in Japan having been a, a major ally of the United States and predominantly dependent on the United States military for its protection all through the Cold War. Uh, South Korea, I want to say, is ranked like 14th in the world. Like South Korea is a major, major economic powerhouse. South Korea, last time I checked, I believe either has the same economy or a larger economy than Russia. I mean, that gives you an idea, right? The, the southern portion of a little peninsula off the, off the coast of China has the same economic, has the same GDP or, or larger than all of Russia, right? That gives you an idea of how important a, a strategic ally, a trading partner that South Korea is. And then obviously, as you go down south, about one third of the entire goods traded in the world go through the Malacca Straits, which is thereby Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, all that just to the south. So you have this major area in Asia that is just, you know, major economic powerhouse, incredibly important for global trade. And China is the big dog in that region. And there's spheres of influence. So you, you have the sphere of influence of China. You have the sphere of influence with the United States, which is like Japan, South Korea, um, you know, the Philippines. You have the sphere of influence with, with India to some degree, um, you know, over around, you know, Bangladesh. Um, so that there's, that, that's kind of what's, what's going on within this region. And so a, a war between the United States and China by necessity brings in a lot of other factors. The, the recent, uh, you know, uh, Ties with between China and Russia after the the invasion, the the economic ties that are taking place, the military ties that are taking place, um, and then you have NATO as a result. All of this is interesting. At the same time that we have countries like France, which are now cozying up to China at the expense of the U.S. Like Macron actually came right out and said, you know, we have to decide whether or not the United States' interest with China over Taiwan is worth dragging France into it, which. Legitimate question, but it also poses a lot of questions for the United States because, let's face it, when the Soviet Union was still a thing, France and Europe was heavily dependent upon U.S. military and economic dominance to be able to hold back the, the, the tide of the Soviet Union, and now we're starting to see a shift within those historic relationships. So that's what's going on there in the history. Now what we're going to do is we're going to line up like Chinese military versus Taiwanese military because one of the things I want to look at is how much could Taiwan do without like boots on the ground from the United States? And, and there's and there's two elements here to think. When I say boots on the ground, there's kind of two things here. One is boots on the ground is that is the United States military has troops in Taiwan defending Taiwanese soil. The other sort of boots on the ground, which is kind of like one level back from that, is U.S. air and naval forces are involved, right? And maybe special operations on the ground, but we're not sending divisions or brigades over to Taiwan like we did in Iraq or Afghanistan, right? So we're not essentially taking over the war for the Taiwanese. We're playing a supporting role. 
this is kind of related to um, what you were just saying about, but with respect to the whole, you know, U.S. involvement, I think a lot of people's first like instinct is to ask, why should the United States, you kind of hinted at it, right? But like, like, why should the United States even care about an island literally on the other side of the world that's 100 miles away from China, but, you know, 3,000 plus miles away from the United States, and which the United States itself technically recognizes is part of China. Yeah. And so the thought process there, I'm a, maybe I'm about to tee Why up are we your losing answer. a carrier battle say, group over there? I was going to say, it, it almost reminds me of like, you know, when the Germans marched into the Sudetenland and people were like, well, why should we care about the Germans yeah, marching yeah. into German soil? So there, there's this slippery slope argument, right? And, and again, slippery slopes have... It, or sorry, the Rhineland, not the Sudetenland. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. yeah, that was a totally different one. That was a different one. So it, it is a slippery slopes are technically a logical fallacy. However, if you if you really look at it, there's a lot of people looking now going, no more telling me that oh that's a stupid slippery slope argument because the things that we said, if you do this, this is going to happen, right? You you can't actually look at things and say there is a causation correlation um, relationship here if these things happen. Well. I don't believe that every time, like Russia invading the Ukraine doesn't automatically, or Russia invading Ukraine doesn't automatically mean we're going to go to World War III. Just like, you know, and, but you look at some of the minor things that kicked off World War I and World War II, and people started making this argument, especially people that are very militarily aggressive, made this argument that anytime a nation engages in any sort of like aggressive saber rattling, you have to go to war over it. I don't, I don't subscribe to that. However, if you like your computer and you'd like to keep your computer, not to mention a lot of the other things within the, the technological sector within the United States, Taiwan is a major trading partner. Not to mention that if China were to, to, to invade Taiwan, when we have essentially guaranteed Taiwan's defense, forget whether or not you think we should. We have. If Taiwan does that and Taiwan falls, South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Indonesia, India, Europe, everyone starts recalculating what guaranteed U.S. defense actually means. And if you're sitting there and you're South Korea and you're Japan and you just watch China invade Taiwan and the Americans go, eh, not really our problem. You completely reorient the way that you've looked at your diplomatic relations, trade relations, military relations, because now you can no longer depend on the United States assisting you in the defense against Chinese aggression. If you're India, you're really starting to get nervous because now all of a sudden China has a free hand to deal in this part of the world and you're their, you're their biggest strategic threat. China has Europe, claims on India. Yeah. To, to your point, China has claims on Indian territory and they have previously fought wars over that, um, over that territory. So if China yeah. was to take Taiwan and then hold it, right, and then kind of present a fait accompli where the rest of the world kind of recognizes it, well, suddenly then they can turn their attention to... Kashmir yeah. and the Himalayas. Because one thing China one thing China understands about the United States is that even if they took Taiwan, there would be trade implications with the United States that would devastate their their current economic growth patterns. So they would have to get it somewhere else. So where are you finding those consumer markets? Well, you got South Korea, you got Japan, you got other places that you're gonna have to make up for that. And again, if South Korea and, and Japan no longer see the United States as being a, a dominant force within that sphere of influence, they're gonna look for somebody else to not they don't want to be next. And, and what you also need to understand about authoritarian regimes, and that's what they have in China. They have an authoritarian communist regime. They don't look, they don't look for the same excuses to engage in aggressive warfare that, that Western nations do. There has to be some sort of casus belli generally within the West. Now you can say, oh, that's ridiculous. The United States goes to war every five minutes. Okay, yeah, but not on wars of conquest. 
I, I'm sorry, our wars cost us more than we get out of them, which usually is enough to keep other countries from going to war, but not us because you know we're always on moral crusades. But if you're looking at if you're looking at China that honestly believes in the exporting of the revolution to other countries, you know, in order to achieve greater you know economic and military dominance, communism and his ideology and whatnot. If they think they can get away with military conquest, they will engage in greater military conquest. They they don't have the same moral qualms with it that that other countries in the West or even in Asia or other parts of the world do. Um, so that's really important to understand the signal that you're sending to a potentially very aggressive nation, which, by the way, and we're going to get into this a little bit later, China's economic situation is nowhere near as good as they are projecting to the world. And most people that are paying attention are starting to recognize that. And when your economic situation starts to fail, regimes, especially authoritarian ones, start looking for enemies. And the first place they focus is outward, and then they start focusing inward. So they're, they will look outward, and they will try to make up for the problems within their economic system through conquest. All right, so. So we kind of know why. This is important. Why this is important, why the yeah. U.S. Has, has any reason to care. I mean, you're... you're to, to drive your point home, like the world's single largest semiconductor company in the world, Taiwan Semiconductor yeah. uh, Corporation, it's, I mean, Taiwan makes like over half of the world's semiconductors. So th that alone, I mean, it, it, by the way, they're trying to divest, right? Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to, to build plants in the U.S. I know that they're, they're investing heavily in Arizona and other places. But um, I mean, from that economic standpoint, that is something that we can't afford to, to lose, unfortunately. So I, I get why the U.S. has an interest in preserving Taiwan's independence or de facto independence, yeah, yeah. right? But um, There's both short-term and strategic implications for the United States. The next question that I'm sure our, our audience and really the general American public has is, okay, well, why would China be willing to, to uh, yes, I get that they're a dictatorial regime, right? But why would China be willing to sacrifice a whole lot of men in order to take this island rather than try to seek some sort of like well, peaceful. Okay. So again, again, they, they've, <laughs> the policy of China has been, we want a peaceful unification with, with Taiwan, but Taiwan doesn't want we're it. We're going to get it one way or another. <laughs> and the, and, and the, and the Republic of China, Taiwan does not want it yeah. period. The end. Um, so they, they, it is an absolute component of their policy that this will happen is this does this explain why you've seen in the news a lot in, in fact our audience probably has as well in the news a lot lately there's been a lot more talk about like military exercises from china yes sea, because, because air. The, they, they've been they've been flying into taiwanese airspace a lot more often than they, recently they've been, they've been positioning their they've been doing naval exercises in such a way that looks like they're trying to isolate the island because mm -hmm. they're not just doing them in the in the strait they're doing them actually on the on the broader Pacific side in between Hawaii and, and, and Taiwan. They're basically trying to set up almost a blockade. They're, 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 they're saber rattling. Yeah. They're saber rattling. And this is the time for them to do it because the United States economic situation is not good. The American people are war weary. The, the attention is on Russia right now. They haven't actually engaged in, in any aggressive action uh, military like Russia has. So it, it makes sense for them to, to saber rattle at this point to see what they can get away with. Now, here's what I want to do. Let's, let's lay up what, what is the actual composition of the two militaries that we're talking about right okay. now? So China's military has the largest military in the world, active duty personnel, about 2,000, uh, 2,035,000. To give you an idea, the United States active duty uh, personnel is 1.3 million or 1.4 million, closer to that. So 
by far the largest military in the world. Their reservists, like their, their active reservists, they can immediately call up is around 510,000. Their combat capable aircraft about 200, or excuse me, 2,921. And their defense budget is 230 billion a year. All right, 230 billion a year makes them the second largest, um, second largest defense budget in the world. And the reason why this is important is because as they say, you know, good good commanders think about tactics and strategy. Great commanders think about logistics. If you do not, this is what Russia is coming into right now. Like we predicted this and we were told we were stupid and we were wrong. We predicted a long time ago. We said Russia does not have the capacity to sustain a long, drung out war of attrition in Ukraine. They don't have the economy for it. You got to have the economy for it. Well, China is certainly in a much better position than, than Russia is to fight a sustained military uh, campaign. So if you look at, you know, there's other things to consider here, which we'll get into a little bit later. Uh, it's very important when you look at these super large numbers to 2 million people to understand or 2 million. I was going to uh, say, that's a military. lot of people. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of people. There's, there's ways to overcome that tech, technologically. But as the Soviets used to say, because they knew their equipment was inferior to, to U.S. equipment, they used to say there is a certain quantity, or excuse me, there's a certain quality to be found in quantity. And they, they were betting on the fact that even though a U.S. tank might be superior to a Soviet tank, if they had four for every one we had, they still, they still won that. They may lose two tanks, we may lose one, but they've got two left and we don't. Right now, what, what started to really shake that narrative was the Gulf War. All right, but having said that, active duty personnel, over 2 million, over 500,000 reserves, almost 3,000 combat-capable aircraft, and defense budget of $230 billion. Let's compare that with Taiwan. Taiwan, active military personnel, 169,000. So it is a fraction. Reservist, 1.6 million. All right, 1.6 million. Um, if you look at their combat-capable aircraft, 474. And if you look at their defense budget, 19 billion, 19 billion. So here's, here's what everyone needs to understand about this. When you look at this on paper between China and Taiwan, when you look at this paper between China and Taiwan, this is a total and utter mismatch. This is why everybody looks at this and says, no, if China wants Taiwan, well, two weeks later, it's theirs, right? It's, it's the newest province. And there's, there's no question about Republic of China, people's Republic. There's just one. It's people's Republic of China. All right. Um, here's, here's the part where I'm going to throw out something that I think is going to be very controversial. I think these numbers are incredibly deceiving. I think despite the fact that Russia has, or excuse me, that China has more missiles, more aircraft, more tanks, more troops, more armored personnel carriers, all of it. I still think that if they tried to invade Taiwan, even with, with minimal U S help, they would be in for an absolute bloodbath. Let me guess. You cannot drive a tank into the ocean. Hey, <laughs> like if Taiwan bordered China on land, it'd be over. It'd be gone. And they would have taken it 50 years yeah, ago. It, they would have taken it 50. Exactly. They would have taken it 50 years ago with, with a military that was nowhere near as advanced as it is now. They would have taken it because logistically they could have just rolled over and they could have just sent wave after wave after wave of, of personnel and Taiwan just wouldn't have been able to to fight it. But go to this go to this uh, next link here, Google Maps. I want to show you something. Okay, so what we're looking at here, for those of you who are listening, we're looking at a picture of Taiwan and um, and mainland China. And what you're going to notice is uh, there's this thing called the Taiwan Strait, <laughs> Tony Strait, that is is roughly about a hundred miles of ocean 
depending on, on where you're landing, between China and Taiwan. So even though, even though you're looking at a complete and total mismatch on paper, the logistics involved in trying to get that huge army over to that island from a, a naval perspective, from an, an air a superiority perspective, that is not an easy thing. That is not an easy thing to accomplish. And, and the ability to pull that off is just incredibly difficult. And so you can look at a two, two million man army, but then you got to look at the Chinese Navy, right? Does the PRC, does the People's Republic of China Navy, right? Do they have the naval capability to be able to get what they need and men and materiel from one side for, from, because the other thing to keep in mind is that if, if you look over here, you're looking at uh Jimin right there and, and, uh, Guangzhou and all that, that is not where Chinese major, that's not where their major naval bases are. That's not where their major ports are. Where are they? So it's actually further south. So it's further south. Like closer to Hong Kong? Yeah, yeah. And further Macau. south in there, that's where you're looking at like major By the way, bases. that's actually kind of interesting for the audience. Like, like relatively speaking, how close Hong Kong and Macau, you know, because those are two very famous cities, yeah. are to Taiwan itself. It's not that far away. It's just a little bit further south down the no, coast. But no, it, but it about doubles, it about doubles the trip. So here, here's what you need to understand, all right? And this is where we're going to go into kind of, all right, so what would a, quote, like, surprise invasion look like? How would China pull this? If China decided tomorrow that that's it, we're going to invade Taiwan, how would it look? Well, the first thing they would have to do is they'd have to mobilize. They, they would have to mobilize hundreds of thousands of troops. They would have to position them in a, in a place where they could load up and pour, and then they could get to the island as quickly as possible. So right off the bat, before, before they do any sort of decapitation attack, which I'll go into a little bit later, before they do any of that, they have to mobilize a bunch of troops. And by the way, the United States and everyone has got satellites just looking over every single military base, every single harbor, every single port, every single naval base within China. And when you do these things, there's things like heat signatures, right? Like it, it's not like you just... It's not like you just turn all of this on and like like slowly move 100,000 troops to one place and we don't notice. Now, you can claim all day long, hey, we're just, we're just conducting routine exercises. This is what Russia did in Ukraine, right? They kept mobilizing troops. We're just doing routine military exercises within you know, the striking US, distance of the border. The U.S. knew well in advance, though, yes. that Russia was... Like, like this was one... Because Nobody US was military surprised that the divisions yeah. were there. U.S. military intelligence got you know, torn to shreds over like, you know, the, the fall of Afghanistan and the Taliban being able to overrun it so quickly. But then yeah. they kind of proved themselves ahead of time when like weeks before it happened, yeah. the Pentagon and the White House was coming out and saying, not that I want to give Joe Biden any credit for anything, but like the Pentagon was coming out and saying like, oh, Russia's going to invade. And I, I remember like at the time people were like, of course, they're not going to do that. Yeah. Maybe they're just going to, you know, send more equipment rattle, to, to yeah. the Donbass or something yeah. like that. But no, lo and behold, they they went in. And it was like the predictions that, that we made came true. And, and what that told me, and I'm sure that you would agree, is that like we do have the ability, not that we're guaranteed to get it every time, right? But like yeah. we do have the ability to detect weeks in advance that a major military operation that a country the size of Russia against a bordering neighbor, that they were going to pull it off, again, weeks in well, advance. Well, that, that's because from an intelligence standpoint, this is important to understand, it is far easier to analyze logistical movements, physical things that are taking place on the ground. It's far easier to do that than to analyze what's going on in somebody's mind. Yeah. 
So if you're doing intelligence work and you're looking at the Taliban and you're looking at the Afghan military, what, what you're analyzing is how many troops do you got? How many troops do you got? Where are you at? Where are you at? What are the logistical? You're not, you're not, you should be, right? You should be, but it's much harder to analyze. Does that Afghan soldier drop his weapon the moment the U.S. leaves and join the, and join the Taliban? No, that's a fair point. And, right? But when you're looking at, when you're looking at Russia going, it, I'm sorry, we don't have a lot. I don't know what Putin's going to do. With the five divisions he's massed along a particular border, but I know they're there and I know what he can do with five divisions. It's the same thing here, right? We might not be able to completely analyze or say for certainty what's going on in, in Xi Jinping's mind yeah. if he mobilizes 300,000 troops. So that, that that's one. If you were to can, like create a, a – go ahead, Tina. a quick go question. Yeah. Um, what would stop China from – utilizing like airstrikes can you explain that no no they, they would that i'm gonna so let, let's go let's go through this real quick and then i'll get to that question nick, so nick, the, nick to, to your point the whole intelligence thing you yeah. can kind of put that on a check for the box the, for che the first check box Taiwan. is mobilization they would know ahead of time yeah, they would know ahead so they would have to mobilize before they can pull anything off so yeah you can conduct airstrikes but you you're not going to be able to do airstrikes in an airborne invasion that would be big enough to actually hold the island or even hold a foothold on the island without major mobilization first. So if I launch a bunch of airstrikes and I send over, you know, let's say 10,000 paratroopers, they're going to get chewed to pieces if I haven't already mobilized my seaborne invasion to land after the fact. Right? To give you an idea, the last time this was done in any sort of proportion was D-Day. And airborne forces didn't go in two weeks before the, the naval forces. They went in hours <laughs> before it. So in order to do that, we're going to know, Taiwan's going to know that, hey, regardless of what the Chinese government is saying, they have mobilized enough troops, naval capacity, air capacity, their, their missile defense systems. They have done all of this in a way that would facilitate an invasion, style, invasion level effort. So they're already going to know that. Right. So right off the bat, that's step one. But that would be the because that has to be the first thing China does if they're looking for a military invasion of Taiwan. So what's the second thing they do? Let's say they get all those troops amassed. So by this point, you already have your diplomatic envoys going back and forth. Everybody's running about it. The Chinese are assuring us that these are just regular routine military exercises. The United States is probably sending money and, and potentially military equipment over to Taiwan. Taiwan is putting all the reserves, which again is 1.5 million, 1.6 million, 66 million, I think. They're putting them all on, on notice. They're canceling leaves for the military. They're probably either hiding in hardening bases. They're moving things around because they know they've got, you know, Chinese spies in Taiwan that have tried to map out as best they can where all their surface to air missile batteries are, where their defenses are, where the you know, key infrastructure that they're going to use to mobilize the reserves, right? So they're, they're, they're doing all this preparation because they can't afford not to. The next thing that, that China has to do before they, you know, loan anybody up and start sending them over is that's when the decapitation strikes come in. So one of the things they're going to try to do is, is position themselves in such a way to where the United States is, is at least, they know they can't be com caught completely off guard, but they're going to try to find a way to do this where it, it's to their best advantage. The decapitation strikes that they launch. I don't see them can, doing. Can any, you explain what I'm a going to? I'm going okay. to. I'm sorry. Like I'm gonna. I don't see them doing a decapitation strike toward the United States where they're trying to come after like the Pacific Fleet. That's just they don't have the. They do not have the offensive capacity. I was to gonna do that. fight you on that, but I'll let you finish. They do not have <laughs> the offensive capacity to launch like a Pearl Harbor style attack. All right. Now, does that mean they can't disrupt the United States in some way, potentially economically, cyber attacks, 
um, things like that to where our attention is elsewhere. No, they would absolutely try to do something like that. But when it comes to like actual kinetic military options, what a decapitation strike is, is it's when you go after the senior military and political leadership of another country along with their strategic infrastructure so as to put them in a position of chaos. Basically, you've created a scenario where they're not able to execute their already predetermined plans in response to Chinese military aggression. So you're going after their political leadership, their military leadership, perhaps their economic leadership in such a way to where when the boats start coming over, Taiwan is not immediately deploying troops. They're first fixing their railways, fixing their um, their logistics centers, uh, electing new representation, you know, uh, promoting other people within their military structure. Now, the problem with this is, one, it, it, it can be difficult to pull off because if we already know that you're mobilizing – you're instantly hardening all of your targets and you're, you're adjusting your security protocols. Um, so the decapitation strike would have the most chance of success where they were hitting hard infrastructure. So I know where the part, the parliament building is not changing where members of parliament are at can change. The presidential palace is not changing where the president's at can change, right? The, the military headquarters for whatever division in the, in the rock military or the Republic of China military, those people can change that they're going to hit all those locations. Plus they're going to hit all the locations that they think are secondary positions that they would hide in a, in a case of an emergency. But one of their biggest ones is, is just destroying enough strategic infrastructure. Um, and, and here's where I think they would, they would really focus their effort. They would have to focus their efforts on Taiwanese air and Naval capability um, as well as the strategic infrastructure to mobilize reserves. And, and again, that's a little bit easier because those are more fixed locations. Now, Taiwan at this point has probably deployed a lot of their Navy. They moved aircraft around because they don't want it all sitting there on tarmacs getting destroyed or sitting there at port getting destroyed if they already know that, that China is going to. But China is going to do their best. They've got a very, very advanced missile corps. Um, they have to neutralize the Taiwanese Air Force and uh, their Navy, especially the Aegis cruisers that Taiwan has because Aegis cruisers are, I, I would argue, more advanced, especially with some of the the technological capacity more advanced than your, your Chinese cruisers with respect to being able to manage aircraft flying in the round. Like you, you got to imagine this ship is so advanced that you're looking at computers where it's managing multiple different targets all at once and, and signaling to you on where you've got to fire, where you've got to shoot, where you've got to deploy. Um, China needs to take out as many of those as possible if it wants to launch a, a successful sea invasion. So it does the, the decapitation attack initially, to try to go after strategic, political, and military leadership, um, and perhaps economic leadership. It's, it's trying to create chaos. Then it's going after destroying naval and air targets, as many as they can. And that's those two things are going to happen simultaneously. You're not going to do a decapitation attack and then go after neutralizing the air power and the naval power is, is critical. To give you an idea of, of a modern example of this, um, the Six-Day War between Israel and Israel, Egypt, Syria, pretty much most of the Arab countries of the region, um, they were able to pull off a surprise airborne attack on the Egyptian and Syrian militaries, which essentially destroyed Egyptian and Syrian air power like on day one. Day one, it was, it was done. And because Israel was able to maintain air, not just superiority, but dominance, they were able to defeat, defeat militaries that, that far outstripped them in men and materiel uh, within a six-day period. China's going to have a much harder time doing that. And the reason why is the exact same reason Israel had a harder time doing it in 1973 with the Yom Kippur War. And that was because of advanced technology and surface-to-air missiles. 
So even if China manages to significantly diminish Taiwanese air power and naval power right off the bat, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden they have the air power necessary to be able to launch enough strategic attacks. Because one, China doesn't have like carrier battle groups like the United States does. They, they, they have some carrier capacity. It's not very advanced. It's nothing like what the United States possesses. Most other nations that have carriers, um, they're far smaller than the United States capacity. They'll, they'll have like maybe tw- 16 to 20 jets. Why do they need, why do they need carriers if Taiwan's just off the coast? So it's a hundred miles away. So the thing that you have to understand is that if you don't down their air force with your strategic, you know, decapitation strike, Taiwanese air power or air technology, I would argue, is superior to Chinese because Taiwan's using U.S. provided equipment. Yeah. And U.S. provided equipment has always been far superior to both Soviet bloc and Chinese technology. It just has. And we've seen this time and time again whenever it's been demonstrated in in, um, modern wars. Um, Now, China still has much better equipment than whatever they've sold to other people, whatever the Iraqis had or whatnot. But it's not just about the level of equipment and technology you have. It's also about the amount of time that you your pilots actually get to train. And one of the things that we've we've typically seen, and I don't know what the numbers are on this. I'll say this up front. But one of the things that we've typically seen is Western militaries and Western supported militaries, South Korea, Taiwan, Japan. They put a lot of time and they put a lot more time and effort into training than their Soviet communist counterparts. So North Korea will brag, China will brag about having all these men. I I, I guarantee you a a Chinese soldier in a class A division, like one of their top tier divisions, probably doesn't, you know, spend as much time actually going to the range and shooting and doing, um, you know, complex combined arms training as the, the average American soldier, you know, in, in, you know, not even in one of like our airborne divisions or air assault divisions. Um, there, there's just a huge discrepancy with respect to the amount of time and money we put toward training versus their minute. I mean, to give you an idea, our defense budget is over twice the size of China's, but our military is about half the size. We, we put a lot more time and effort in, into the training component. So if you're, if you're in a fighter jet and you've got to fly from mainland China and you get in a dogfight over Taiwan, you burned a hundred miles worth of fuel and, and then you need 100 miles back. And 100 miles back. So that's 200 miles of fuel, fuel gone right off the bat. Your ability to conduct an, an effective dogfight compared to a Taiwanese fighter, that's two very, very different things. Okay. Not to mention the fact that if your aircraft are coming over, flying 100 miles over, um, they're also flying into established SAM batteries. I'm sorry, surface-to-air missile batteries strategically located all over Taiwan. So you're not just fighting Taiwanese fighters. You're fighting surface-to-air missile batteries, and Taiwanese fighters are not, unless you have additional naval capacity, which is able to you know, come in on, in support of uh, Chinese uh, PRC air efforts. Right? So this is, this is the, the asymmetry is, is not working out for the Chinese trying to fly over there unless they have you know, naval dominance. So right off the bat, their, their, their desire to get naval and air superiority, at least dominance preferably is severely curtailed by logistics involved in all of this. Okay. So then the counterpoint 
is, well, that's where... And, and this is all before the United States has majorly gotten involved. Sure, but but the counterpoint is, is that that's where artillery and rocket strikes and hypersonic missiles come in. Because if China... You're launching an artillery strike from mainland you China can, over 100 miles You can miles certainly launch rockets, you though. Love, yeah, missiles, sure. Yeah. You can certainly... You, I mean, this is why China's been investing so heavily in hypersonic weaponry. Yes. Because the whole point is, is that you're not going to open up an invasion with flying... And you, you said it yourself um, when, when we had this argument earlier. Earlier. You're not going to open up the invasion with loading up the troops on the ships and then just sailing towards Taiwan and then engaging them on the no, beaches. No. You're going to open up a fight with you're going to prep these the decapitation strikes that yeah. you talked about earlier, right? So they're not going to start with the troops getting on the ships and sending them into the sea, no. right? They're going to start with with rocket attacks. They're going to start with missile strikes. They're going to start with yes. airstrikes, and they're yes. going to try to knock out. Taiwan's air force and yeah. their navy before they send their navy in and put it in a vulnerable situation where Absolutely. they could get blasted out of the water. So, and and we know the question is how successful those. So first of all, are, are your hypersonic weaponry and your missiles absolutely? And to give you an idea what hypersonic means, like I'll just I'm going to read this off. A hypersonic weapon is a weapon capable of traveling at hypersonic speed, defined as between five and twenty five times the speed of sound. All right, super fast. Why is this relevant? When you look at the when you look at the countermeasures that we have within US naval carrier battle groups, we have the ability to shoot missiles out of the sky, but not hypersonic ones. Or or our, our ability to shoot down hypersonic uh ballistic missiles and things like that is severely curtailed versus like the old like French Exocent missiles and typical ship uh, missiles. So that and and the reason why China has invested so heavily in that is because they know they cannot compete with the United States ship for ship carrier for carrier. Yeah, so sink them before they do compete. So they're, they're trying to create an asymmetric ad advantage, but it provides them a defensive advantage more than it does an offensive advantage. Nick, this, this kind of brings me to the argument that I was having with you before we started uh, going live. I'm somewhat worried that it's technological. We're fighting the last war. That we're fighting the last war. Yeah. And here's what I mean by this. It gets into my dissertation, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and what I've been studying for grad school, we know that there's been a long history of, of an event happens, a war happens, a battle happens. Everybody thinks that's the future or at least yeah. the present. And then the next war happens and everybody learns, oh, the stuff that we learned from the last war, that's out of date now. Real quick, uh, real quick example would be um, there was only two battles, naval battles, that were fought between 1866 and uh, 1904. You had the Battle of Lisa in 1866 between Italy and Austria, and you had the um, Battle of the Yellow Sea and the Battle of Tsushima in 1904-1905 between Russia and Japan. What happened after 1866 was is that the Austrians beat the Italians, despite being outnumbered and outgunned. They managed to defeat the Italians at the Battle of Lisa using ramming tactics. Yeah. And so suddenly, all the navies of the world, including the British... The number one Navy were like the, the technology of the future is the Ram. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody started building these Naval doctrines around yeah. ramming. Everybody was like torpedo boats and cruisers and yeah. Rams and destroyers. Those are going to outcompete battleships and ironclads yeah. because the and Austrians then, managed and then to the do Japanese it. And the Japanese sunk the Russian yeah. Baltic fleet. And then the, the battle of Tsushima happens and the Russian Baltic fleet just gets obliterated. Yeah. It won't behold the Rams on the Russian fleet. Didn't even come close to touching yeah. the Japanese. Well, and, then, and then you see the same problem in World War II where the British thought that their capital ships, their heavy cruisers, their battleships could save Singapore 
and the Japanese sank it with aircraft. And and likewise, the Japanese thought their ma- I mean, they built the world's largest battleships, right? Yeah. And those got sunk by American carriers. And ironically enough, it was the the Russo-Japanese War that made people think, oh, the battleship is now dominant. Well, so and then that was challenged thing. with the carriers. This so the point is, yeah. I, I'm going to tee this up for you. So the point is, is that we've seen this evolution before. Yeah. The carrier has been the predominant naval weapon since World War II. What makes us believe it's still the dominant naval weapon of today with the existence of things like hypersonic missiles? I think it, I think when you discuss dominance, it has to be in the context of what are you trying to achieve. Carrier battle groups are still dominant for certain tasks. For instance, if you have to get an air platform, like if you have to get jets to where you need them to fight or bombers where you need them to fight, Right, the carrier is still the best way to be able to do it quickly and efficiently, provided you're not up against a, a nation with sophisticated hypersonic or ballistic capability, which can you know fairly easily sink your carrier. Not by engaging in in a you know carrier battle group to carrier battle group fight, they don't win that, but by simply launching enough ballistic missiles at your carrier to where you sink it, and now the the devastating loss of life because you're talking about five thousand people on a carrier, you're, you're talking about eighty plus aircraft. Um, And again, one of the things the Chinese also understand about fighting the United States is that you're not just fighting our military, all right? You are, you're, you're fighting a a U.S. and and this is, this could be a a positive thing, right? We do not have a high threshold for casualties, especially now we would, if you invaded the United States, we'd have a much higher threshold for casualties. That's not what this is. And no Americans would see it that way. And so what you're fighting with the, what the Vietnamese realized in the Vietnam war is that you could launch the Tet offensive, get your butt kicked and win because the American media were like, well, we must not be doing that well if they were able to launch the Tet offensive in 68. And we were told everything was going smoothly, right? Same thing. We were told the carrier battle groups dominate the waves and nobody can compete with the United States. And they just sunk two carriers and we just lost 9,000 people. Yeah, that would have a huge, that's why I think that if the United States military strategy for supporting Taiwan is that heavily invested in carrier battle groups, we're going to run into some problems. And I think we know that. So the question is, is again, what, what are you doing? What are you doing to position forward position units? If you already see the heat blooms going up and all the naval bases in China and you know, an invasion is imminent, right? You, you can't rely exclusively on that, but by the same token, it's also important to understand missiles got to be launched from somewhere, right? You don't pull up with a truck and, and light your missile off, right, to take out a carrier, right? There's, there's technology, there's logistics involved in that. And, and, a, and a, a significant part of Taiwanese and U.S. intelligence is identifying those locations because before we would ever launch carrier battle groups to put them in, in harm's way, we're going to do our best to make sure that we've neutralized certain positions. Now, okay. does that help Taiwan in, in the opening days of a decapitation strike? No. Right. Those, the base, any base that they have on a map that they know about, which is probably most of them, if not all of them, they're going to get hit. The, the question is, is how good a job have you done at moving around your aircraft or making sure that they're not present when it's hit? And, th- and that's much harder to accomplish than people think it is. All right. I mean, I, I think that uh, th- that's my biggest worry that and, 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 so the, this, yeah. the will to fight, because I know that there's so many Americans, as you said, we have a low threshold for casualties. We lose two or three carriers. Let's say that, that China yeah. does open up a war with deciding that, you know what, the risk of a retaliation from the U.S. is worth. We need to knock out these carriers before we land. And they yeah. open up the, the fight with attacking our carriers. If you with these open hypersonic up now, here's one weapons. thing. Here's one thing that people, the Japanese learned this the hard way. If you start a war with another country and we get involved 
we will be angry and we will fight for a long time and the whole deal, we will spend a lot of money, we'll spend a lot of blood, we'll spend a lot of treasure. But there is a point where we're just done. We're tired and we, we don't feel like doing this anymore. You attack us at home, we will jack your world up, right? We didn't nuke Germany. We dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. And, and hardly an American batted an eyelash because you started it. Like there, there was such a sense of outrage at, at the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor because it violated all, all kind of like norms with respect to international law, with respect to, there wasn't even notification. It was a surprise attack. Like keep in mind, even when countries engage in war now, even when for all intents and purposes, they haven't given a lot of advance notice. It's usually like, here's the declaration of war. All right now tanks go over the, the border. This one was, we bombed you, we killed you, we killed civilians. The moral indignation, that's the other thing that Americans are very, very capable of. You give us a lot of moral indignation, again, we will jack your world up. And so I think if they launch a, if they attack the United States first, because that's what Japan was. I don't mean mainland. I mean our carriers that are the Seventh Fleet, right? It doesn't matter. You've attacked the United States. You've, now, you're right. If you do it on our land, it's even worse. But if you if you draw first blood against Americans without declaring war, we take that real personal like. <laughs> so you think suddenly our tolerance for casualties goes way uh, up yes. if we get attacked I, first? I think our tolerance for casualties goes way up. I think um, – now, there's always going to be elements within the United States that we'll, we'll always fight against. That will always be prob- – but look at 9-11. 9-11 is a good example of this. Bush came in. He wasn't overly popular the whole deal. And five minutes after that, he was incredibly popular. And it was the first time that I think a sitting, an incumbent president actually picked up seats in a midterm election in the midst of a war that wasn't necessarily going, you know, wasn't hugely popular. But there was still this idea that, no, 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 they hit us and we're hitting back. Now, we can argue okay. all day long how misguided. No, it sounds like it'd be dumb for them to attack us first. They yeah. would have to attack Taiwan first and then threaten to, you know, us to not they, they intervene. Would have to, they would have to attack Taiwan and be like, this is not your fight. And if you send your carriers over here, they will be hit. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then we make this the decision. This is not your of, fight. Yeah. The, the Chinese would be doing a massive, a massive propaganda campaign throughout the university, American university system, because they've got a lot of students in our American university system. It would be a massive campaign that this is an internal Chinese civil war. They would point to U.S. policy and guys, you guys acknowledge it's an internal Chinese civil war. Why would Americans go to die for an internal Chinese civil That would be the propaganda campaign that China would launch in the United States, largely through our university and media system, at the same time that they were pulling off all of this. Right Now, once they've done this decapitation strike, the next thing that they have is you, you're, you're trying to coordinate this as closely as possible, airborne and seaborne invasion. Because it... You can blow up all. You can blow up everything you want if you don't have boots on the ground imposing your will. You don't control it. You don't control it. Best you've yeah. neutralized things. Plus, you pissed off everybody that buys, you know, <laughs> microchips from <laughs> Taiwan. All right. So you you do all of that. Then you have to launch your airborne invasion again. You've got to get that through sam surface to air missile batteries, which love nothing more than to shoot transport aircraft. Then you have to then you have to get transport slow moving transport ships. And do you know the do you know the capacity it takes for transport ships to move tens of thousands of troops? It would be a slow and they would need to well you you told me earlier when I was like I don't know 10 20,000 and you're like no 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 they would oh, need no. way more than that. So I th- there's a couple questions I know that the audience had about this topic. Yeah. And I was trying to to hint at, at some of oh, them good. earlier. Yeah. What, are, what are some audience questions? Tina, did you have any? I I have a few right here. Um one 
sometimes people will ask a question that might get answered throughout. All right, go but, ahead. Yeah, just stop um, me and start answering. Okay, do the nature of Taiwan being an island, oh, due to the nature of Taiwan being an island, wouldn't it be more of naval naval support? I think you kind of answered Yeah, no, no, that. no, that's a, that's a good, there's two things with Taiwan that's important to understand here and makes it different from like things like D-Day. One, the distance between mainland China and, and Taiwan is like four times the distance. That's significant. The amount of, the amount of naval support and dominance that you have to have to support a seaborne invasion is significant, not just because of the initial invasion, but then how are you getting all the food to feed a hundred thousand troops? Some of that you can get from, you know, getting it like living off the land. But the problem is, is that the Taiwanese are, they will fight. They will see this as an invasion. They will fight, which means if they can't use it, they will destroy it in their wake. Not to mention that if you look at a, if you look at a uh, Hamilton, can you have me the mouse here for a second? Uh, I want to show something here on the on the map for those that are watching. Um, there's a uh, there's a better map of this, but um, I forgot how much I hated Hamilton's mouse. All right, <laughs> if, if you if you look at this, if you look at Taiwan right here, all of this area kind of in green, this is all mountainous terrain. Give me just one second, Nick, to get this on the screen. Okay, one moment, dude. We got to do something about this mouse. We will give me this give me the mouse horrible. just for a second. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Every, See, the audience for the audience listening, Hamilton's mouse is like inverted, and it's, oh my gosh, right, go I ahead, don't know Nick. what sort of witchcraft that mouse is. But, <laughs> all right, so if most you, if of the population look, of Taiwan is on the west coast, which is actually a problem, right? Because yeah. they're within range of of China's. Yeah, their their major population centers, the the lowlands, their agricultural areas are all facing China, right? It's on the western part of Taiwan, which faces China. That's also where major like the it's it's interesting, kind of a funny thing you can do. Like, okay, where would they actually land? Go look at it, beach in Taiwan. <laughs> and that's going to give you that's going to give you a, a picture of all the major beaches and stuff like that which are all in this area. Hamilton, all you need to do is just click on the layers down there to show the satellite view and you'll be able to see yeah. like like geographically <laughs> what but, it But but here's it looks here's like. what you need to here's what you need to understand. Taipei, the capital of Taiwan is in the north, right? A lot of your your beaches and areas that would be like prime areas to land are up there. Um the other thing to take into consideration is like, this is all the lowlands, but there is so like all this high ground to the Eastern portion of Taiwan, there are major rivers that just cut through the lowlands and those always create logistical barriers to ground movement. So again, it doesn't matter if you've got a thousand more tanks than the Taiwanese do, if they're not in country. And then it doesn't matter if you have a thousand more tanks, if they're not where the fighting is because the Taiwanese have blown up every single bridge. And now you have to have, you have major logistical nightmares. They also need to take a port in order to offload all the yes. supplies, right? You're not, you're not the, the little, when we look at D day and the little landing crafts that those were not main battle tanks coming off of those things, right? That is infantry that is highly vulnerable that is, that is trying to take it as, as much of a foothold as possible so you can then offload your major heavy equipment to expand your 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 foothold. Yeah. The logistics involved in that are a nightmare when Taiwan has already mobilized 1.6 million reserves. You're, you're not landing on the eastern side. They know where you're landing, right? 1.6 million reserves. Everybody's armed. You've got to now do this grudging move over all of these rivers, all of these bridges. They've blown up every single one. It, it doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take, it takes a very, very cheap anti-tank missile to take out a very, very expensive tank, right? This is a nightmare. And then let's just say you, you, let's just say you managed to get some of the larger urban areas. You're fighting urban warfare sucks. 
You are fighting house to house. Really? Block I thought you block. loved it. <laughs> oh my gosh. It may be fun you to have train. Some experience in that. It may don't be you? fun to train. It is an entirely different thing to there there are so many areas in Iraq. Um when when we were we were going through in northern Baghdad where you're I shouldn't say all this with Tina's <laughs> I there, appreciate not knowing. There's how so many times. There are so many times. <laughs> there was one time in particular where we we were we were surgical strike, right? Surgical strike. We controlled the area. Mm-hmm. Surgical strike. We're we're trying to get this guy that we had in, intel on. All of a sudden, somebody in the house starts screaming and yelling. Well, you just lost your element of surprise. So, you, you know how you make up for a loss of element surprise? Speed and violence of action, right? So we we just go barreling in there. And again, thankfully, we're in a position where nobody decided to fight back. They all thought, you know what? This is probably not a good idea to fight back. We're just going to get detained. So that's what happens, right? We got him, got him back, the whole deal. We got our, we got our bad guy. But you're thinking about this going, dude, all it takes, like if, if all it takes is a couple more people to decide, no, 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 we're going to fight this out. Dude, I'm sorry, man. I, I mean, the military put me through a lot of training, but if, if, if 30 people on that block decided they were going to start taking pot shots with AK-47s through the windows, we're taking casualties. I have a, I have a question. You would think, knowing all these obstacles, and, and I'm not entirely convinced that, that China couldn't, if they sacrificed enough time and manpower and yeah. resources, that they couldn't take the island. Yeah. But, but you would think that wh- why wouldn't China use this whole propaganda campaign? We were talking about this earlier, yeah. right? Like, like, like why, why wouldn't they, they do that in Taiwan, right? Why wouldn't they invest all their time and efforts creating propaganda within the university system in Taiwan and creating a new generation because of Taiwanese so, students that want unification so over there? They they know that. Look, the the United States. Mar- United- Marxism is super popular in the U.S. Yeah. with younger people. Why couldn't it be super popular with younger Taiwanese? Because their grandparents know what it is to flee it. That's the big, you want to talk about the big difference here? It is so much harder to convince people that have experienced communism that it's a great idea than it is some rich liberal college student at Berkeley that thinks that communism is them living off of their daddy's money while they write poetry at the coffee shop, right? They have no idea that when the communist leadership takes over, they're working in a coal mine somewhere, right? They're not writing poetry for the revolution. Sorry, all the poet positions have been taken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but hard on. labor is. Yeah. Let's move on to the next question. I, th- I thought that was like a really important yeah, question no, it's, to ask it, there. It's that. a lot difficult to pull that off because the, the I, I love too the whole idea of like, oh, you know, it, the problem is we don't have greater understanding. These two countries understand each other okay let's move to the next question um with all the implications involved military economic cultural etc what would you say would be the tipping point where the chinese strategic calculus equals go to war u.s economic what would those conditions be u.s economic collapse oh so it's inevitable then (laughs) (laughs) They, they would have to be so sure they would have to be so sure that the united states could not get involved in in any capacity um, in order to do something like this. And at that point, it might not be necessary. Taiwan might look at that and come to some sort of So you don't think there's a scenario before that that I don't think it. so. The only thing, well, okay. A let's... unilateral declaration of independence from Taiwan would, would result, in, in fact, it's actually enshrined in Chinese law that they would immediately launch an invasion if Taiwan it's declared a, it, It's one thing to enshrine. It's one thing to write something on paper. It's another thing to actually make it happen in reality. Sure, and, but I, I, think... I don't know that... I, I don't know. Now, with Xi Jinping, maybe because here's the other factor here with the, to answer this question. 
the other thing that could potentially launch something like this is impending civil unrest within China. Uh, because nothing holds down unrest at home like a war, a, a war, a war abroad. abroad. Yeah. And, and that's people can look at that and get mad all day long. But I'll tell you what, a country that's at peace for too long starts to turn inward. You know, th- th- there's a really Ask us how we know. There's oh. a really good example of this, and it's the Falcons War. Yeah. Almost, almost exact scenario. Military dictatorship. Argentina. Economic problems at home. Yep. Military dictatorship makes the calculated decision to, well, you know, we've had this claim on the Falklands. Let's invade it. Yeah. And it didn't go well for them. But the, yeah. the fact is, is that that was an attempt to distract the public from problems at home with the fact that the centrally planned economy that the military dictatorship yeah. was running wasn't working that well. Yeah. And, and China China's at a point right now where the, the economic prowess that they've experienced is is... Much of it was from liberalization of their economic and trade. And by liberalization, I mean freer markets, not, you know, centrally planned economies. I don't mean liberal in the American sense of, you know, leftist. Um, it was liberalization of their economy, liberalization of their trade policy, uh, a- allowing for private property ownership, allowing for entrepreneurship. Essentially, the more capitalist China has become, the more prosperous it has become. The problem is they've also tried to cheat with central planning and, and inflationary monitor. They have a, they have an inflation and housing problem in China that makes the one in the United States look minuscule yeah, by comparison. Minuscule. We have talked about this on the Y minutes actually many, many times yeah. about China's and problem. I mean, it's gotten so bad that the Chinese economy is relying on them building ghost cities yes. to maintain the housing bubble yeah. that has been propping up a huge sector of they, their they, economy. They have, they have built mega cities that nobody lives in. Crazy. This b- brings me to my next question from Jay Solar 590. Yeah. Why doesn't China have a larger military considering their population over 1.4 billion people and only 2 million soldiers? Militaries are expensive. Militaries are expensive to main and, and why do they need it, right? You, you only need again, they have the capacity, they have about 500,000 active reserves, which is actually smaller than I would have anticipated. Once upon in the in the Good old days of Mao, there was a much bigger Chinese military, a much bigger Chinese um, reserve. They, they don't need it. They've, they've poured a lot more of their investment into uh, the economy, which actually makes sense for them. Because one of the lessons that was learned um, in you know things like the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, the Gulf War, the Iraq War, is that numbers alone and quantity of equipment does not equal success. Um Russian Soviet military equipment was so incredibly embarrassed in the Arab Israeli wars that it got to the point where Russians were sending down their own pilots because they were convinced that the problem was Syrian pilots just were horrible. It, It couldn't have been their MiGs. It had to be Syrian pilots. It turns out it was both. And then when the Israelis started shooting down Russian pilots, the Russians immediately removed their pilots because it was embarrassing. But their equipment is nowhere near as, as good as they claim it to be. And, and a lot, like just man for man, like every infantryman in the United States, I want to, I think this is still a true statement. Every infantryman in the United States has night vision. Do you have any idea what a huge game changer that is? Absolute game changer. When you can fight at night and the other side can't like when, when M one Abrams were fighting T 72s in, in Iraq, it didn't matter that the Iraqis might've had like two or three T 72s for every M one Abram Abrams. If we can destroy your tanks a mile before they can open fire. So, that that's the sort of that's the sort of thing where I do believe that China has focused on the modernization of their military and not just numbers, not just you know people with a uniform and AK forty seven, but actually updating the the training and and capability of their military, not just the quantity of their military. Um, one more question that I have, and that I, I think a lot of audience. I think that was all the questions from uh, the chat, but you go ahead. With okay, yeah. one question that I have that I think that a lot of audience members would have 
is a lot of this, and, and I know there were a lot of comments in the chat because I was reading through it. A lot of um, a, a lot of this is going to rely on on your ability to ship men across the ocean, right? Yeah. As I said at the beginning of the show, you can't drive a tank into the ocean. Yeah. So, what is, in your opinion, the biggest issue the Chinese have with actually taking control of the Taiwanese Strait just long enough to get enough men across to actually take the island? Like, like of all the issues that are out there, what's the number one issue? The, the, so the the same the same strategy that China's developing to mitigate U.S. carrier dominance is the strategy that can be used against them to destroy transport ships, to destroy their own cruisers and everything else. Like hypersonic weaponry is not unique to China. And, and it wouldn't take much for... I mean, we, we have the capacity to engage in, in that sort. Not to mention the fact that you don't actually need hypersonic weaponry to take out Chinese naval vessels. So in, in order for you to transport, let's say 100,000 troops, um, from, from what, and then all the logistics necessary to support those troops, this isn't as simple as dropping off 100,000 guys, right? If, if the ammunition ain't coming with them, or the food ain't coming with them, you just dropped off 100,000 casualties. The, the naval dominance they would have to achieve in that area that could be maintained and sustained consistently over, I would say, a several-week period would be incredibly difficult for the Chinese to be able to pull off. And, and at some point, they're going to look at this as like, what is, like what, how much casualties are they willing to sustain? Now, authoritarian regimes are always famous for being able to sustain far more casualties. How many, how many casualties did an authoritarian regime sustain? As many as possible without getting over, violently overthrown by their own people. <laughs> how many can, how many can a, a Western republic or democracy sustain? However many without losing the next election cycle. That's the difference. That's the difference. And it's obviously significantly higher numbers for the authoritarian regime. I have uh, just want to double check that you, it sounded like you might have answered this, so I'm yeah. going to ask it. Um, if hypersonic weapons would be so important to China, would the innovations in anti-hypersonic um, weaponry we are currently working on change their timeline? Yes. Yeah, so we're, we're definitely going to attempt to develop you know effective countermeasures to that. The, the problem, here's the other problem uh, when you're looking at this from counter, when you're looking from a defensive perspective, you got to be right all the time. When you're looking from an offensive perspective, you only got to be right once. So if I launch a hundred missiles of that carrier and you block 99 of them, congratulations on almost not having your carrier sunk, right? It, so the, the defensive component, we're, we're going to have to come up with a different way to be able to mitigate the overall, the overall threat. And, and to Christian's point, we, we are approaching an era where I, I think the carrier battle group still has an enormous amount of strategic importance. Um, and, and for a variety of reasons, but the idea, will it be able, will the carrier, will the U S carrier battle group be able to dominate an offensive capability in the way that it has in the past? No, no, because asymmetric warfare will, will be able to prevent that from taking place. So the last, I, I, I want to give you an opportunity for us to close. I'll, out I'll the, close out with making the argument on here for because what I believe the is. biggest thing that I, I, I think that, that you could provide for value for the audience is kind of a, a reiteration of what you brought up at the beginning of this show with like, why does this matter, right? This island on the other side of the world from the United yeah. States that's just off the coast of China that m almost the entire world recognizes as part of China. Why does China want it? Why does it matter? Why would it almost be guaranteed that the United States would get involved? And and could China take it if they actually did try for whatever reason? Let's say an economic collapse forces them to d distract attention. Let's say an economic collapse on our end yep. provides them an opening. Let's say a declaration of independence happens. Some, something triggers the 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 act. Could they actually pull it off? Those are like the the kind of big points that I think 
would be really, so, really so important to close with. Why, why, it matter, why it matters to the United States is because it will, right now, the United States is still the military and economic hegemon, which that means we're the top dog, and it is so evident and obvious we're the top dog that nobody can really mess with us. You, you can only mess with us to so, to so much, and then we're going we're gonna to slap you down. If China successfully invades and takes Taiwan, that now changes. We're now back to a a, a, a kind of a, a similar situation that we had with the Soviet Union and the United States, and that has massive implications for the rest of the world. But unlike World War II, where the West was firmly in the camp of the United States, right? Going into this, we'd be going. We basically be going into it after a defeat, and so the West would not be automatically on the side of the United States. France is already demonstrating this. The Biden administration has done more to kiss up to leftist governments in Europe than Donald Trump sure did. But France wasn't talking about how we need to renegotiate. We need to reevaluate our, our relationships with the United States and China. That's okay. That's different. So we'd be, we'd be entering into a world where the United States, the dollar would probably not be the reserve currency for a, a lot of places around the world. Um, there, there would be, China would be seen as on the ascendancy. The United States would be seen as on the decline. And every other nation, which right now it is a foregone conclusion that they are in the United States, they're, they're an ally, would start to reevaluate. And that would include the third largest economy in the world with Japan. It would include, I think it's the, I think it's the 13th largest economy. 14th, 14th, 14th or 13th. Lar- 14th or 13th largest economy in the world with South Korea. It would include every nation right now uh, along the, the border of the Malacca Straits where one-third of all trade takes place in the world. India all of a sudden would look at it as, I, I don't, we may be on our own, which they're going to feel isolated not only because of China, but also because of Pakistan, which is also a nuclear power. Russia would all of a sudden be in a very different position. They'd feel a lot emboldened. With, with respect to where they're at. South American countries, African countries, where a lot of like the strategic resources for the future global economy are, are at, they would really start evaluating where, where they, because right now they, they've been cozying up to China, but they're starting to reevaluate that. They're starting to back away, but if China if suddenly wins a war and the China United States wins a war, back, the United States was responsible for, they're going to look at that as like, okay, they're going to look at it as not only will the U.S. not come to our aid, not only the U.S. does not necessarily possess the same economic prowess that they did before, but when the... We're going to get a better deal trading with the Chinese. No, it's not even that. When the U.S., if if you screw over the U.S., you can get away with it. Try that with the Chinese. (laughs) Try If you screw over the United States government, eh, wait a couple administrations, no big deal. You screw over an authoritarian communist regime, there are consequences for that. Ask Sri Lanka, right? Ask other African nations. When when you cut a deal with China, they will will back it up with troops if they need to. Um, so that, that's one thing. Why does China want Taiwan? Uh, again, they, you need to understand that historically as, as their identity, they see this as a position of national honor. The bloodiest war in all of American history was the civil war. We, we had, we had, you know, was it nine States tried to basically break 11, off 600,000 yeah, casualties. Yeah. Um, break off and say, Hey, we, we don't want to be, we don't want to be a part of the club anymore. And, the union said, no, no, you're, you're a part of the club. This is, there's no, again, you can check out, you just can't leave. Right. Um, so they, they see this as no, this is ours. This is, this is a part of national honor. And again, it's an authoritarian communist regime. When they say national honor, they mean it and they have the ability to do it. So they're, they're not backing away from this anytime soon. So that's why it's important to us. That's why it's important to the world. 
And that's why this, this will remain an issue. But the one thing, and again, the catalyst is the question. So every time China sends out ships around Taiwan, that doesn't mean they're getting ready to invade. I hope, I hope I've done a good job making the argument for why this is far more difficult for China to pull off than it may look like it is on paper. Okay. But you're not necessarily dealing with a completely rational regime, especially if they find themselves in, in serious damage. So the, the two catalysts, one catalyst is internal to China. The other catalyst is, is external. If the United States, if they, if the Chinese are convinced the United States is not going to intervene, they will probably risk it. And, and honestly, they probably wouldn't have to, because if Taiwan is suddenly in a position where the U S doesn't have their back, they know if China really wants it, they, they might just try to strike the they, best they, deal. They, they could. would, they would kill, they would kill 20 invaders to every one person they lost and they would still lose 20 invaders, one person and they'd still lose. Um, so if, if, if that's the situation, again, this is why I think that it probably doesn't go to a, a full all out invasion. There's probably going to be some way to where either we maintain the status quo or China's economy collapses and they're in a position where they can't pull it off. And Taiwan, because there's already a movement in Taiwan now, it used to always be that they, they wanted to maintain the one China policy. They're now starting to see a push in Taiwan to be like, you know what? Let's just end the charade. We're Taiwan. They're, we're Republic of China. They're China. Yeah, the, the DPP is basically yeah. a Taiwanese nationalist party, and they're yeah. the current party in power right yeah. now. So there's there's all of that, and then on top of that, um, you know, the 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 other the other impetus would be the United States hasn't undergone you know complete economic collapse, but China needs to move, and they feel like America is is in a state where they're just they don't have the they don't either have the resolve yeah. or, or the energy to do it. Last question, 30 seconds. Do you think that it's imminent? Do you think it'll happen anytime really soon? No. No? I don't. I don't. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I and, and by, by imminent, we're talking the next couple of years. I, I just, I don't. I could be wrong, but under the current conditions, not. All right. So those are some of the reasons why <laughs> this would be a whole lot harder for China to pull off than possible um, or than, than most people think it would be. And, and the reason why we think it's important for our audience. Again, this, this starts... This is going to come up more and more within the news feeds over the next couple of years as we look at the changing power shifts between Russia and China, between the economic problems the United States is facing. And it is it is a problem we need to be very aware of. I, I don't think any of us should think for a second that because this isn't as easy as it looks on paper, that it's not a real threat and that the United States doesn't need to be prepared for it and, and the strategic implications of it. Uh, but by the same token, it, it is about time we start to understand that, that China is not rivaling the United States for global hegemonic status. There is one country in the world right now that could actually pull off a successful invasion like this, and it's the United States, and we have absolutely no intention of doing so because it's a total and complete pain and because we're tired of fighting wars that we don't need to be fighting. Anyways, hope this helps. Hope you find it interesting. Please let us know what you think of my analysis. Um, if you think I'm completely full of it, let us some more of it. And... Um, and we'll, we'll check that out. Also, if you haven't already switched over to the new channel, again, please continue to follow us on the Nick Freitas YouTube page, but also going over the Making the Argument channel. This is really going to help us later. We're also, we have some stuff that we might be letting you guys know about in the future that's, that's going to be important for you to be following both of those channels. Once again, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next episode.